Greetings, World Geography students. Welcome to the very first podcast of the fall 2020 semester for World Geography. This podcast will serve as the online lecture of our hybrid course. Later in the week, I'll also make available lecture slides, resources that might complement this podcast. For those of you who wish to practice your visual interpretation skills, check one of my references or review what we learned in the podcast. Why have a podcast over just lecture slides or text? I chose this format for a couple of reasons. First, podcasts allow for long-form storytelling. World regions contain a multitude of stories that we will explore. Developing a narrative of a world region can help you gain a better sense of the places we will travel to. Second, podcasts are easy to listen to while doing other things. We are all incredibly busy. A number of us have multiple jobs or have taken on more classroom credits this semester than we can manage. Let these podcasts be a pleasant part of your weekly routine. I recommend listening to these podcasts while you go for a walk, work out, take your kids to school, do laundry, or go to the grocery store. Then re-listen to them to make sure that the information concretizes in your brain. At the beginning of each podcast, I will summarize what our objectives are for the week. Some weeks will be longer than others. If you have a hard time following along or you lose attention, no worries. Just rewind and start that section over again. Before we begin, I cannot possibly talk about Europe without making you aware of the elections that happened in a country called Belarus. In your mental map of the world, Belarus is a landlocked country located in Eastern Europe, just north of Ukraine. Like many countries that are neighboring Russia, Belarus is about as old as I am, approaching 30 years old. It used to be part of the Soviet Union, which contained numerous republics in Eastern Europe before it collapsed in 1991. Belarus gained independence and has had the same president for a quarter century, Alexander Lukashenko. This year, elections gained international attention because they were blatantly rigged. Lukashenko's opponent was a former English teacher, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, who was the wife of a famous YouTube blogger who was arrested after trying to become a candidate. Tikhanovskaya's platform was centered on election reform. If elected, she promised to serve as president for six months and stepped down to hold a new, more legitimate election. Much of the country supported her candidacy, yet Lukashenko came out on top with 80% of the vote. 80%! Shortly after the election, Belarusian security drove Tikhanovskaya out of the country to Lithuania, where she currently resides in exile. Protests are happening all over Belarus right now. Using Europe as our backdrop, we are going to talk about superstitions, pathways, and talking to strangers. By the end, it is my hope that you will be able to explain 
how the environment and superstitions interconnect, using witch hunting in Europe as an example, explore the various pathways Europe has to offer, and articulate why people are terrible at profiling strangers. The road is calling, everybody. Let's go. I'll start off with a story. As a child living in Kansas City, I would often stay at my grandmother's house when school was out and my parents were at work. I loved going to Nana's house. A lefty like me, she was part of a culture which forced Southpaws to compose with the right hand out of superstition, as though the left hand were a direct DM to the devil. Her carefree, ornery spirit resonated with me as a kid. Many cultures have superstitions, beliefs in the supernatural. Ghost stories and horror films tap into our superstitions and inject fear into us. Throughout history, we have reacted to this fear in different ways. To better understand superstitions across cultures, we must consider the context. What was the environment like? What was the quality of life for the people living there? Which religion dominates the region? Now, some of us might remember the British comedy troupe Monty Python. One of the group's most famous movies is the 1975 Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's a hilarious film set in AD 932, when King Arthur romps about Britain with his servant, recruiting men to become Knights of the Round Table. In one scene, a mob asks the king's servant, a witch, a witch, we have found a witch, may we burn her? The king's servant, Patsy, replies, well, how do you know she's a witch? One of the mob responds, she looks like one. Meanwhile, the accused witch defends herself. They dress me up like this. This isn't my nose, it's a false one. Though this scene is comedic, it does possess some truth. During the 14th through the 18th centuries, Europeans tried around 80,000 people for witchcraft. The accused included both men and women, though mostly women. Oftentimes, the evidence was lacking. According to an article from The Economist, allegations of sorcery frequently resulted from a simple disagreement or an unexpected death of a loved one after a fight. What was the conviction rate, you might ask? Around half. Around half were executed by hanging or burning at the stake. In that same article, a debate was brought up among academics over what the environment was like during the time of intensified witch hunting. There is disagreement over the circumstances that triggered these superstitious acts. Some claim it was due to harsh climate, while others attribute it to the religious geography of Europe, which comprised of the Protestant and Catholic churches competing for converts. I think witch hunting is rooted in both environment and religion. Religion drives our perceptions of people in the environment. During this period of time, folks believed that there was a sharp divide between civilized society and the scary, demon-filled wilderness just beyond the tree line of the dark forest. Superstitions stem from people 
wanting to establish a rigid social order on a chaotic, ever-changing world filled with disease, drought, and disagreement. More often than not, women were associated with the unruly wilderness because Earth tended to be gendered toward female. For example, calling the Earth Mother Earth. Thus, women were unfortunately more likely to be charged as witches and sentenced to death by angry mobs. Let's fast forward from medieval times to today. Superstitions still prevail in Europe, even though people are becoming less religious and more secular. In France, exorcisms are on the rise. Exorcisms are rituals involving the casting out of demons of a possessed person. One exorcist is estimated to have made $168,000 US dollars per year performing private exorcism consultations. After terrorist attacks in 2015, France saw a sharp increase in exorcist demand. Now, why is this occurring? Largely because the demand for exorcists has surpassed the willingness of the church to perform such rituals. And because humans are still superstitious beings. Now, reflect on these questions. Do you hold any superstitions? No matter how trivial they might be? Do these beliefs affect how you react to the things that you fear or do not understand? Okay, back to Grandma's house. One of my memories about Nana's house was a tapestry on the wall with an Irish Catholic prayer. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face and the rains fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. In this prayer, we encounter paths, those ribbons of compact dirt, asphalt, gravel, and pressed grass that we tread upon. Paths are the between while we venture from point A to point B. Paths are taken, for example, when a group of European friends go bar hopping among local microbreweries, which now number around 7,000 in the region and 2,200 in Britain alone. Aside from brewery tours and commuting to work, we also encounter the path as a spiritual symbol, the journey we take through life. Consider all the paths you and your ancestors have trekked to get you here at this very place and time. Think about your own life's journey. Where has it taken you? Where are you going? It is no wonder that some of the greatest thinkers were also avid walkers. The famous English poet, William Wordsworth, is estimated to have walked between 175,000 and 180,000 miles on his knobbly legs. I did the math and I found out that if you were to walk five miles a day, you would reach 180,000 miles in 73 years. 
73 years, five miles a day. Imagine that. During his walks, the poet would gain inspiration, which can be experienced in one of his great poems called I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud. Let's take a moment to enjoy the beauty of the poem's first stanza. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high over vales and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils, beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. There's a delightful story to this poem. On April 15th, 1802, Wordsworth and his sister Dorothy were walking home from visiting friends along the shore of Ulswater, one of England's largest lakes. Dorothy's journal recounts the story. She writes, When we were in the woods beyond Gobarrow Park, we saw a few daffodils close to the water's side. We fancied that the lake had floated the seeds ashore and that the little colony had so sprung up. But as we went along, there were more and yet more. And at last, under the boughs of the trees, we saw that there was a long belt of them along the shore, about the breadth of a country turnpike road. It would take Wordsworth around two years to produce a poem documenting this experience. The scene was a perfect example of that enduring truth that life is more about the journey than the destination. And through paths, we grow closer to the world and our place in it. Europe is an old region, long inhabited by people. Paths have existed for tens of thousands of years. Paths aren't just a means to an end in Europe. They tell stories of the people who walk them, care for them, and pave over them. In Northern Europe, Norwegians equate walking paths and cross-country skiing with fresh air life, or their Norwegian word is friluftsliv. In Norway, the state mandated a freedom to roam law. This freedom to roam law allowed citizens to freely walk across property lines and even camp on private land. In this section, we will talk about paths of pilgrimage, migratory paths, and paths of terror in Europe. First, paths can take the form of a pilgrimage, an existential quest combining spiritual and physical travel together. According to geographer Robert Stoddard, people of various religious traditions have their own pilgrimage routes, hoping to request a favor, give thanks, fulfill a vow, or to acquire salvation. One such pilgrimage is the Camino de Santiago, or the Way of St. James. The Camino is a network of old paths that lead to the Santiago de Compostela Cathedral in northwestern Spain, where pilgrims arrive at the remains of the Christian apostle St. James. Now here's a mental map note. 
Spain occupies Southwest Europe. Places that surround Spain include Portugal, which hugs its western side, the warm Mediterranean Sea in the east, France to its north, and North Africa's Morocco to its south. Okay, back to the Camino de Santiago. Routes exist to Compostela from neighboring France, Portugal, and from other parts of the country. This Camino is so significant that the United Nations declared it a World Heritage Site. Because of its broad appeal, people of all belief backgrounds walk, bike, and ride horseback along the Camino. One of my favorite writers, David White, pens a lovely poem in the book Pilgrim about his stint walking along the Camino. I'll include the last lines for you. His words describe a journeyer who experienced a significant loss in their life. Through the Camino, they can reshape their identity to become a seeker of new insights, gaining this title of pilgrim. Here it is. But your loss brought you here to walk under one name and one name only and to find the guise under which all loss can live. Remember, you were given that name every day along the way. Remember, you were greeted as such and treated as such, and you needed no other name. Other people seemed to know you even before you gave up being a shadow on the road and came into the light. Even before you sat down, broke bread and drank wine, wiped the wind tears from your eyes, Pilgrim, they called you. Pilgrim, they called you again and again. Pilgrim. As this poem shows, walking the Camino allows people to drop their personal baggage for a period of time and strip down to the simpler identity of a pilgrim. Paths aren't always about pilgrimage. Humans are by nature unsettled. Our species is always on the move, regardless of mountains, political barriers, and other obstacles in our way. Thus, migration, the movement from place to place, represents a fundamental part of being human. Ancient tracks can be discovered along Norway's Hardanger Plateau, which is Europe's highest continuous plateau. Plateaus are these long, flat spaces that are really high in elevation. Stone Age hunter-gatherers carved these paths pursuing wild reindeer. Traveling there, you can still see indentations in the ground from thousands of years ago. To guide the way, large rock piles called cairns were created to be seen from afar. We all belong to a long-standing tradition of migrants. Modern Europe is no different. With the establishment of the European Union, migration between many European countries became much easier. Moving to and remaining in European countries becomes much harder to do when some citizens begin to view migration as a problem. These difficulties especially pertain to the sought-after affluent countries of Germany, France, and the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom, which recently left the EU. 
The European Union was founded following World War II to unite the region politically and economically. One outcome is that each member country uses the euro. Having the same currency facilitates economic commerce. Going to Brussels, Belgium, you will encounter one of the EU's headquarters where many of the decisions are made. Brussels is a lot like Washington, D.C., but for the EU. So let me set the scene for Brussels. Picture walking through narrow cobblestone streets in Brussels' historic district, passing an odd sculpture of a baby peeing off a ledge, and peering at murals of Tintin, a famous Belgian cartoon character. Nearing the EU headquarters, the landscape starts to shift. You're taken aback by the ornate Royal Palace of Brussels and the expansive park that it overlooks. You begin to notice more official embassies from various countries, each with their own colorful flags. Then, alas, you make it to the EU's headquarters, a massive complex of concrete, metal, and glass, a stark modern contrast from the rest of that old city. The European Union currently consists of 27 countries. Some countries, like the wealthy Switzerland and Norway, are not members of the EU, preferring to be financially and politically independent. To become part of the EU, a country must apply. After the fall of the Soviet Union in the 90s, a number of Eastern European countries gained membership. December 2002 in particular saw what is nicknamed the Second Big Bang, in which the EU welcomed 75 million new people when it accepted 10 new members from many former Soviet republics. Three of those former republics include the Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Here's some fun facts to remember these three Baltic states. Estonia is where Skype was invented. Jacob Davis, a tailor born in Latvia, invented denim in 1871 Reno, Nevada. Lithuania has its own national scent, which is a mixture of wildflowers, ginger, raspberry, sandalwood, and other ingredients. You might also remember that Lithuania is where Svetlana Tikhanovskaya was ousted after the Belarus elections this year. Backpackers to Europe will likely witness the ease of frog hopping among EU member states. Envisioning a Europe without borders, the European Union passed the Schengen Agreement in 1985 Luxembourg. Luxembourg is a microstate bordering Belgium and its primary economic resource is banking. While exiting your train to a new country, you don't have to risk major fees at the ATMs, exchanging your euros for other currency. But there are some exceptions. Some countries refuse to use the euro. So in the Czech Republic, for example, you'll need to change your euros to Czech crowns. Croatia has kunas. Hungary has forints, but for the most part, travel between countries feels as simple as road tripping across the United States. Admission to the EU makes a lot of sense for a country, especially one of the younger republics that came from the Soviet Union. 
But does everyone agree? Let's take a look at the United Kingdom, which has Europe's second largest economy after Germany. After 47 years of EU membership, Britain left the EU last January. Here's the story in brief. In 2016, former Prime Minister James Cameron held the vote on whether or not Britain should leave the EU. The referendum was nicknamed Brexit, which was a combination of Britain and Exit. Supporters of the legislation conveyed sentiments of anti-immigration, desire for economic independence, and a wish to reclaim British national identity. These supporters criticized the EU for allowing an influx of immigrants from various parts of the world, particularly refugees who were coming in illegally from war-torn parts of Africa and the Middle East. Furthermore, Brexit railed against the idea of having to support collapsing economies of EU members like Greece. The EU's porous borders and uneven economic prosperity stoked cries for leaving. Critics of Brexit accused the legislation of being xenophobic, parochial, economic suicide, and disconnected from the global economic hub of London, which really depends on migrant employment. Originally, Brexit appeared to be a meaningless publicity stunt to bolster support on the right, but it passed. James Cameron promptly resigned. Theresa May took his place, followed by the current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson is currently working to usher in the Brexit transition. He took over last July 2019 and won a general election in December of that year. I was in Wales for a conference when the general election happened, and the pubs were filled with both celebration and devastation. Tabloids featured Johnson on the cover with his messy bleach blonde hair. Much like our news outlets, the papers wrote in big fonts praising the decision or expressing dismay. Most folks I talked to, though, seemed exhausted by the tedious four-year process and wary of the uncertainty they face. In the end, migration in Europe continues to be a push-and-pull process in the political realm. Political beliefs dictate whether to welcome immigrants or keep them out. Regardless of political party, what geographers know to be true is that humans are naturally mobile, regardless of obstacles and barriers put in place to order and organize this chaotic world. If the road is calling, people will respond, spilling across borders of every kind. For more than 100,000 years, we have done this. I will end this podcast with a final category of paths, those of terror. Imagine yourself visiting Greenwald, Germany, where an old train platform remains from World War II, which occurred from 1939 to 1945. Here and elsewhere, trains would gather unwilling citizens and deport them to Nazi concentration camps, which were then designed to efficiently extirpate Jews from the face of the earth. Architect Lance Necker 
describe the experience on the platform like this. Quote, Stand here, and you may feel as if you too are waiting to be removed. Stand here, and you are in the presence of official bureaucratic evil of death. Unquote. These paths signaled the bloody, starved, overworked, suffocating end for over six million people. The Greenwald platform stands as a Mahnen, which is German for warning, against future human rights travesties. In 1933, the Nazis won control over the German government. German Jews originally tolerated the vote, but incorrectly trusted that the Nazis would not deprive them of their constitutional rights. Timothy Snyder wrote in his book on tyranny, Quote, the mistake is to assume that rulers who came to power through institutions cannot change or destroy those very institutions, even when that is exactly what they have announced they will do. Unquote. Later that year, Germany became a one-party state governed solely by Nazis. No longer were dissenters able to run for office. And to quote the American proverb, where annual elections end, tyranny begins. Adolf Hitler's final solution of the Jewish question aimed to kill 11 million Jews and ultimately murdered 6 million. Leading up to World War II, world leaders and the public alike severely underestimated the carnage that would happen. Malcolm Gladwell wrote that one of the oddest parts of the war's beginning was, quote, how few of the world's leaders really knew the German leader. Hitler was a mystery, unquote. In 1938, Neville Chamberlain, then the British prime minister, visited Hitler after threats of Germany invading Czechoslovakia. Occupying Czechoslovakia could mean invading other parts of Europe, which would cause a world war. So Chamberlain, to try to ease this tension and negotiate, met with Hitler three times and conversed for hours. In the end, the prime minister reported to his cabinet that Hitler had shown, quote, no signs of insanity, but many of incitement, unquote. Hitler repeatedly denied expanding his crusade beyond Czechoslovakia. And Chamberlain even got it in writing. Therefore, Chamberlain confidently believed that Hitler would not invade much of Europe like he would eventually do. Chamberlain was deceived. And Hitler pressed on from Czechoslovakia to invade Poland on September 1st, 1939. So this is when World War II began in part because of people who struggle with their impressions of strangers. The mistake proved fatal. Here's the leadership lesson of the day. Do not always trust your impressions of people. First impressions, third impressions, 24th impressions. Sometimes our impressions are just confirmations of our own biases. Neville Chamberlain, 
misread Hitler because he wanted the German leader to be rational insane. Now, history does not look at Chamberlain in a positive light. So, in conclusion, what have we learned today? First, humans are prone to superstition and will often act based on their own fears and wishful thinking. The witch hunters of Europe teach us that fear and bias can lead to irrational reactions. Second, pathways contain important stories about where we came from and where we're going. For example, travelers walk the Camino de Santiago as pilgrims in search of personal meaning. Third, humans have migration running through their blood, which can often come into conflict with imposed political borders. Residents of the European Union differ in their ethical views toward dealing with the influx of migrants, and Brexit illustrates this tension. Later this semester, we will put ourselves in the shoes of a migrant to see what it's like. Finally, paths of terror, like the train tracks of Nazi Germany, offer a dire warning for history to not repeat itself. All right, that's all that I have for you guys today. Be curious, explore often, and pursue meaningful things.